Sorry that we weren't able to be with you all last night. But some master used to say, man proposes and God disposes. So sometimes nothing nothing to be done. I want to begin by reading um, a fairly long section from a discourse of Master Kripal Singh. This is from the new book, which I hope everyone has seen, Coming Spiritual Revolution, which I'll talk about a little more before evening is over probably, or maybe tomorrow. Uh, a talk I want to read from is How I Met My Master, which begins with Master Kripal in, in answer to a question going into a lot of autobiographical detail about what, how he um, met his master, as the title would indicate. And then he gets into a lot of other things, and about halfway through, uh, he stopped and had Taiji Bibihar Devi sing one of his songs, an exquisitely beautiful prayer. And then Master commented on that song, and I'm going to start reading at that point, although um, the part that I want to emphasize is coming up a little later. So this is Master's comment on his own bhajan. When we take the first step of joining any religion, we go to churches and to the holy places of worship where the ministers of those churches tell us to repeat the scriptures from day to day. They give us the same story. There is God. There is Son of God. You can meet him through the Son of Man. God is within you. The kingdom of God is within you. These teachings are only meant to develop love and devotion within us to know God. By hearing them, a strong desire to know God is developed. And then, those who by reading scriptures and hearing daily lectures have gained that strong desire in them to see God say, O oh, ministers, stop all the reading of these scriptures to me now. Tell me how to see him. The wish to know God has been developed in me. That's an earnest desire. I don't like your preachings anymore. Now tell me how to know God, how to see God. All through life we've been hearing these long yarns. God is there. God is within you. You have joined this religion. Remain in this religion. Oh, minister, what are you doing? You are after keeping your formations intact. No one should leave them. And I am after finding God. Religions have to do with my body. If he is within me and beyond all senses, then tell me how to know him, 
how to see him. That's the earnest desire of any lover of God. And the questioner says at this point, Maharaji, but when you ask a minister how to find God, his normal answer would be, if you read the scriptures and if you live right after you die, then Christ will show you the kingdom of God. And Master said, that's all right. Religions only promise experience of God after death, not in life. But mysticism promises it in life and masters, never after death. If you want to live on credit, it is your own choice. For everything in the world, you want cash. If in the case of this life and death problem, you would like to wait till after death, it is up to you. Then the natural question arises, if you are yearning and pining to see God so much, why don't you die in that separation? You have perhaps heard about Lord Rama. His wife Sita was abducted by a king named Ravana. She was under his arrest for many years. Lord Rama first wanted to find a clue whether Sita was there or not. Hanuman, the monkey king, went there and found that she was there. When he came back, he brought the clue to Lord Rama, Sita is there alive. And Rama asked him, why did she not die? She said that if she were separated from me, she would die. Why is she alive? You see, strong yearning means that. A fish cannot live without water. People say this, but really it's not so. Then what did he reply? The soul of Sita left the body, but is waiting in the eyes. Why? Because if the angel of death comes, he will not find her in the body, but she's waiting in the eyes to see you. So strong a yearning is the natural feat of love. All masters, whenever they came, said the same thing. The tenth guru of the six said, Hear ye all, I tell you the truth. Irrespective of whether you belong to one religion or the other, that makes no difference. Through love alone you can know God. All others also said the same thing. Those who do not know love cannot know God. Christ said, if you love me, keep my commandments. What did he say? I will pray the Father... <coughs> And he shall give you another comforter, that he may abide with you forever. Even the Spirit of Truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it seeth him not, neither knoweth him. But ye know him, for he dwelleth with you and shall be in you. I will not leave you comfortless, I will come to you again. I point out that Master is quoting here from the Gospel of John, and he continues to do further on, too, uh, two more times, actually. And he is quoting from memory. And I would like to mention that the quotes here are absolutely accurate in the King James Version. This is obviously a section of the Bible that he had memorized. If two men, four men, love the same man... That is a point for consideration. True love is where there is no question of competition. When there are two lovers of the same master, they compete. One says, I should be in front, and the other says, I should be in front. 
But love knows no duality, no competition, no anger, and no coming to the front. Just judge your love for the Master. Why does all this conflict remain among the followers? Because they have not got real love, I tell you. If they have got real love, love knows no competition. Each one will be happy the more he can put his shoulders to the wheel for the same cause. Christ said further, but the Comforter, which is the Holy Ghost, whom the Father will send in my name, he shall teach you all things and bring all things to your remembrance, whatsoever I have said unto you. Peace I leave with you, my peace will remain with you forever. So as I told you, love knows no competition. When two followers of the same master do not agree, one says, I am in the forefront, and the other says, I am in the forefront. What is the result? To me, apparently, such a follower has no love for the master, true love. He has love for the master for selfish motives. He wants to come near to him, to the forefront of him. So love is the remedy for all things. Love and all things shall be added unto you. That's the pity. We don't love. And then Christ said, As the Father hath loved me, so I have loved you. Continue ye in my love. If ye keep my commandments, ye shall abide in my love, even as I kept my Father's commandments, and I abide in his love. He loved his Master, his God. He said, I give you a new commandment. Love one another. There we are wanting, I tell you. I have been pressing this point very much ever since I have come. This is the only remedy for all our ills. If one man goes ahead, it is his grace. And he goes on to talk about the competition between Taiji and himself, which, as he said, such like competition is good, in which Taiji, when she heard that Master meditated six, seven hours a day. She refused to go meet him until she did that much also, actually more. She said, when, I've, when I will do seven hours a day, then I will go meet him. And Master, was, he laughed a great deal as he told that story, and he said that such like competition is good, but no other kinds. Well, I think people, the point is, Master has left us physically, okay? It is a very difficult time. We can't go to see him anymore. You know, the all the advantages that come from having darshan, being with him physically, looking into his eyes, you know, writing him letters, having him take us in his arms and hug us or tell us how much he loves us and giving us encouragement and support when we need it or rebuke and scolding when we need that. None of that is now possible in that form. This has happened, of course, over and over again. And in fact, those sections from the Bible that Master was quoting 
are things that Jesus said to his disciples the night before he left them. And the point is that he does not leave us bereft. He gives us that which we need. Now the presence, the promise of the comforter, and I would point out that the word in the King James Version is indeed comforter, but that the the Greek word that is in the original text is parakletos. Sometimes you see it paraclete in the English. Of course, it doesn't mean anything in English really, but the word most scholars think it really means advocate. Okay? Our advocate. The master power within us, which is one form, one aspect of the Holy Spirit that the Master promises to us is our advocate. He takes our side. Okay? He is our advocate in connection with the negative power and he is our advocate in connection with what we deserve. This is, of course, the definition of grace, something we don't deserve. We get it, but we haven't earned it. It is given to us by someone who has it to give and who wants to give us what we need so that we will be successful. This is what the master, all masters come to do. That's one form of the presence of the Holy Spirit within us. And it is indeed the actual essence of the master, his own life impulse. Master Kripal Singh used that phrase very much. His own life impulse is present within us. He has given us his own life and it lives on, okay, amongst us, within us. There are a number of connotations to that too. There, there are implications to that which are of the utmost importance. And I'll get back to them in a minute. But the other form in which the Holy Spirit lives on amongst us, and Jesus also meant this, although most Christians would not want to read it that way, but we know from early church history that in fact he had several successors, truthfully. One of them was his brother, James the Just, and he was, in my opinion, uh, the truest and most complete successor, the one who inherited the full share of power. But there were others too. In any case, um, the Master is an incarnation eternally present upon the earth. Swamiji Maharaj said that emphatically using the word Satguru. Satguru, the true Master, the Master of Truth, is an incarnation eternally present upon the earth. Therefore, whoever seeks the Satguru will surely find him. This is in the Sarbachan. So we know that we will have it both ways. We have the presence of the Master within ourselves. He has given us that. That is his gift to us. He gives us himself. In the crown of life, Master explains how when the candle lights another candle, which is he uses as a metaphor for initiation at that point, then 
the gift of life passes, the flame passes from one wick to another, at no loss, no loss to the first candle. The Master, by giving us himself, doesn't lose anything. He has given us that which he has to give, which he is in fact supposed to give, and which with all his heart he wants to give, because that's what he exists for. That's his reason for being, is to give us his own life impulse. Anyway, that also is there, but similarly, the cries of the seekers cannot go unheard, and there will indeed be, always is in every case, someone in whom that same power is manifest, and a new bulb to take the place of the bulb that is burned out. And that will happen, you know, but we, and we will know, we will know who that is, but we do have to be patient and have some faith in the will of God that things will work out as they are supposed to work out in the fullness of time. And that will happen. And if we can remember who we are, okay, the, the other implication or another implication, after all, if all of his initiates carry within themselves the life impulse of the master, then what does that make us in reference to each other? You see, we have to value each other. We have each other. That's who the master has left us. Temporarily, that's what we have, outwardly speaking, not inwardly. We have each other. We must value each other. This is what the master is talking about in the section that I read. There we are wanting, I tell you. Usually we are wanting in, in that. Not that I, I, the Sangat, since the Master left, has been, as far as I know, very loving and has been very respectful. If we continue like that, that's a good thing. And I'm not saying that we haven't or that anyone has done anything at all. I'm not aware of anything. But I am thinking back when Master Kripal left the body, how people... Of course, the Sangha was immature, the American Sangha was immature at that time. We had never, most of us, ever experienced the Master leaving. It is an extremely difficult thing to live through. And if people, you know, are grieving or angry at him even for going, this is not something that we can help. You know, we, we do feel when a child is young and his or her father or mother dies, often he feels that they have betrayed him by leaving. And if anyone feels that way about the master, I think that it's a mistake. I mean, I don't think it's correct, but I don't blame anyone for thinking like that either, because we are his children, and we're not very mature, and uh, it's a natural kind of reaction. But the thing to be to be triply aware of, I would say, to be aware of the threefold working of the master power. And if we are fully aware of that, then, you know, we can, we can take the full import of what the master wants to give us. 
in the threefold working within ourselves, the presence of the master power within, within each other. Each of us is of infinite value in the eyes of God, and we have to treat each other that way and recognize the infinite, and I use the word infinite advisedly. If we study the teachings carefully, including the Bible, we will see that the, the correct way to understand the human soul is as of infinite value in the eyes of God. This is why in Luke chapter 15, where Jesus tells the stories of the three lost things, the lost coin, the woman lost a coin, she had other coins, but she went through her whole house and did not rest until she found the coin that she had lost. The lost sheep, the farmer lost one sheep out of a hundred. He had 99 sheep were safely in the fold, but it was as though they didn't exist. All that counted was the one that was lost, and he did not rest until he had got that one lost sheep. And the lost son, the prodigal, a famous story of, of the, the father and the son who did everything wrong, blew his inheritance, wasted his father's reputation, and came back and was greeted only with love. Okay. Why are those stories there and what do they mean? They are there because each individual, you cannot say, okay, I got, excuse me, I got 99 sheep. All right, I got 99 sheep, so I can stand to loss of one, one sheep. And people do, you know, think like this all the time, about people too. Uh, I mean, people, people in positions of power, global leaders who make decisions involving this and that, oftentimes uh, they know that a given decision is going to result in the loss of human life. They, they, they think it's okay. You know, this can be calculated in. Or if you make an economic decision and it involves thousands of people losing their jobs, that's okay too. You know, it's part of the deal. But that's exactly the opposite of the attitude that Jesus is talking about in that chapter. Each person counts. The Talmud says <coughs> that he who saves one human life is as though he saved the world entire. And that's the same idea. That's, if any of you have seen the movie Schindler's List, that quote is in the front of that movie. The point is that we, there is no, there is no, you can't calculate humans in this way. Actually, it's true, of course, of all life. As the Buddhists would say, all sentient life, maybe, maybe all life covers it. But human life even more so, because as humans we should be aware of where the other members of our species are at. Anyway, that is of infinite value, and that is why 
the Master comes for each one and he will not rest until every single one that he can forgive and give the teachings to is in his fold and he will he will accomplish that so we have to be aware of this with each other this is the teaching on forgiveness you know we don't know where we stand jesus told the story of the the two servants um, this first servant owed his master an enormous sum nine million dollars it says uh, so many um, talents in the Bible but talent was a very large weight of silver it was very valuable and ten or twelve talents was several million dollars by our our reckoning anyway fantastic sum you think how on earth could a could a slave or a servant owe his master that much money but he did according to the story and the master was going to put him in prison and he begged and pleaded and said he would try to pay it back and have mercy on his family and his children and the master forgave him so he went out got his fellow servant who owed him twelve dollars backed him up against the wall grabbed him by the throat and said pay it to me and the servant couldn't so the other servant had him thrown into jail when the master heard about it he was very annoyed and this is you see to the master here now if we don't forgive each other this is what we look like okay because we don't know we're going back lifetime after lifetime of course we don't know where we're at but the master does and when he forgives us it is with the implicit understanding that we will share that forgiveness with others and by doing so that also opens up the channel so that forgiveness will flow to us this is why in the Lord's Prayer we pray forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us if we don't forgive those who trespass against us then where's our prayer we pray that a lot but sometimes we don't always forgive so it's the two things go absolutely together and they cannot help but go together any case the master comes for this purpose he is basically a seer of the value of souls because he knows their value he loves them because he knows what they really are he forgives them what they have got themselves into okay, the mistakes they make the dirt they have accumulated all of those things he sees right through them he knows what the person really is and he he is sorry for whatever they've got themselves into but he does forgive them and he will do what he has to do to make them learn how to do better but he doesn't hold it against them if they don't he continues to love them and the second they turn towards him like the the prodigal in the story in the Bible he forgives them and this is all because of the infinite value of the human soul and when we say that God resides in every heart
this is what is meant. This is why. You see, each individual is so important because God really does reside in every heart. And this is what Master Kripal meant by the spiritual revolution. In this book, he explains this very clearly. He traces the spiritual revolution back to what Jesus said that is usually quoted as repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Okay. What does that mean really? Repent has acquired a theological overlay in English. In Greek the word is metanoiate. Change your mind. Okay. Turn around. In other words, revolute. Right. It is the verb that has the noun of revolution. That's what's supposed to happen. Change your mind. Change your angle of vision, if you like. For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. What does that mean? The kingdom of heaven, in the Greek, again, heaven is in plural. The kingdom of the heavens. Okay, Jesus and the other people involved with him are very aware of the multi-layered universe that the masters have taught us. Okay? They were very aware. St. Paul says, I know a man in Christ above 14 years ago, whether in the body I cannot tell, or out of the body I cannot tell, God knoweth. Such a one was caught up into the third heaven, and there he heard the unspeakable words of God that no man can utter obviously aware of the teachings, took them for granted, didn't put them in his letters in, in detail because this was the kind of thing that was given to, as instruction to people when they were initiated. But there it is. When you see clearly that, they, that it's there, then it's there. And every time in the Bible that it says the kingdom of heaven, what it's really saying is the kingdom of the heavens. And he is referring to the astral plane, the causal plane, the supercausal plane, and the pure spiritual plane that we are aware of. Jesus knew all about them, and he was teaching their reality to the people. But what does at hand mean? That's translated as though it referred to time. This is because by the time the Gospels got put together, people were thinking in terms of an external thing that was going to happen in the future. Okay, In the future, everything is going to be different, and God is going to bring his kingdom outwardly. That's what is called the, the future eschatology point of view. Okay, But what the term really means, if we study the Gospels carefully and we see what Jesus was really saying, what that really means is that the kingdom of heaven is very near you, okay? It's a spatial thing, not a temporal thing. It's within you, in fact, as he says in another place, okay? The kingdom of the heavens, the universe, the macrocosm is in the microcosm, within you. That's why if you change your mind, if you change your angle of vision, if you turn around, if you let the spiritual revolution happen in you, you will see it. Because you can't see it if you're not looking in the direction where it is. If it's within us and we insist on looking without, then how can we ever see it, you see?
That is what is meant by that. If enough people do that, of course, and this is the other part of it too, then it is very true that when there are, a, you could say, a balance of if the thing, if enough people do it, the phrase escapes me, but there's the idea of the balance of power, but that isn't exactly it either. If enough people do it, the balance is tipped, and then the spiritual revolution does really refer to an outer thing, and the kingdom of God then can come without also. But first it has to come within, in the, in the lives and the hearts of the people who are open to it. And when enough to make a difference experience that within themselves, it will definitely spread to others and the world as a whole will be affected. Master Kripal used to talk about this in connection with the Hindu idea of the yugas. He used to say, everybody says Satyuga will come, Satyuga will come, but the point is, that it has to start from where we are. We are in the Kali Yuga, the age of darkness, okay, the Iron Age, the age where life is short, grace is abundant, but everything is awful. Okay? The Sat Yuga, the Yuga where humans have the scope to live like human beings are supposed to live, that will come out of the Kali Yuga. Master Kripal said that a lot when I questioned him specifically about how that fit with the typical or the traditional Hindu view of the day and night of Brahma and the long length of the yugas, he said that that is like that, but if enough people become spiritual in the Kali Yuga, in other words, live up to the principle of truth within them, which is what Sat means, then um, the Sat Yuga will come in the middle of the Kali Yuga. We have it within our control, in other words. We have the power to, if we are fully true to ourselves, fully live up to what the Master has given us, fully recognize the infinite value of each human soul, value each other as children of the Master, and other people too, not just initiates, by the way. Master and both Master Kripal and Sanchi used to quote, ultimately there is no difference. Whether a person is initiated or not is a point in time. Okay? Sooner or later, everyone will come back to God. Why? Because of the, what I was just saying, of the infinite value of the soul. There is no person, no animal, no plant which God is not within. Therefore, each of them will have to come back to him. And that is what is meant in the thing that both Sanchi and Master Kripal often quoted. Everyone is yours. No one is without you because the Bani says we are all created from one light. There is no place that anyone else could have come from, you see. Because we are human, or you might say, because we are alive, God loves us. We are his children because we exist. There is nothing else required to make us his children. 
anyway, this is what the Master has given us, you know, is, is this understanding of things. This is part, he says, Master Kripal says in, in this book, that the spiritual revolution starts with right understanding. And right understanding starts with this recognition that God is resides in every heart. This is what counts. I mean, when we talk about what, what the important teachings are, you know, if we tend to think in terms of almost theological terms, okay? We, we describe the path to people and, and the master and the nam, and all of that is important. I don't say it isn't. But the thing that's really important, the thing that makes the difference, the thing that will make everything else possible is the understanding that God resides in every heart and the view of human beings that comes from that. That is what counts. That will bring about the spiritual revolution. That is what we have got to make our topmost priority. To look to. We have got to look within ourselves and we have got to recognize his continued presence among each of us. And we can do that. You know, this is not something that cannot be done. Somewhere in the, yeah, actually it's in the book of Deuteronomy in the Bible, Moses has given the law and he says, it's not that this word is, is far away from you, O Israel, that you have to go look for it in the skies above or in the oceans beneath. No, this word is within your very being, within your heart and soul. And it's right there, available to you. And that's what everything the Master demands of us is within our very heart and soul. It's as near to us as can be. Nothing is closer than his presence within us, his power within us, his grace within us. Those are, are what, we, what we have and they are what we must put our attention onto if we are to play a part in both our own liberation, okay, and also the spiritual revolution regarding the world at large, which can only happen if enough people, not that they have the correct beliefs regarding this or that system or this or that person, but that they truly and really within themselves have turned themselves around so that they see the presence of God within every being. And that there we will live as though we were someplace. See, this way of approach to the world makes the world heaven. Because who is in it? See, who are our, our fellow beings? There are a number of stories Master tells in this book. And I, I wanted to say I, I love this book um, partly because it was the last the last specific assignment that I ever got from Sanchi was to to bring this book out. 
you know, the idea had come to me from within. But I took it to him in India, I think it was in Bombay a couple of years ago. And uh, I told him what I had in mind. And he was very encouraging, and he said to do it. And I asked him if he would write an introduction for it. And he said, you put together an introduction from things that I have already said about Master Kripal. And that will be fun. that will be an introduction. So I did that. It took me a while, and it, there was a point at which I forgot that I was working on this, and it went on hold for a while, maybe a year and a half, two years. Anyway, um, just this last winter, I got again from from within. It came over me very strongly to do this, get this book done fast. And I wrote, so, I mean, I, I made arrangements to make it happen. It was pretty much ready to go. It was because I said it had been on hold. And I put together the introduction, as he had asked me to do. And I I mailed him the introduction and my foreword and also the uh, lists of talks, etc. I sent him the whole outline of the whole book. And in his last letter that he ever wrote me, he said um, that this would be very good if this could be done before the tour, which I realized was a, in retrospect, was a, a way of spurring me on to get it done. Because, in fact, it, it was it came out very shortly after the tour, and probably we probably would not have gotten it out for the tour even if the tour. That happened, although it's hard to say. But anyway, because of that, because of that particular connection, it has seemed to me a very special book. And these are talks which have meant a great deal to me over the years. Many of them, most of them I was present when Master gave them originally. This is a story that Sanchi also told, somewhat different version. But this is the point. And moreover you will find, once a devotee prayed to God, please come to my home. My prayer is you will please visit my home. God promised I will come on such and such a date. The devotee made all arrangements, you see, decorated his house with flowers, cleaned it throughout, and put on really clean clothes. He sat at the door and waited for God. From morn to night he sat there, but all who came was one old man passing by who could not even walk properly. The old man said to him, Well, I am hungry. Give me some food. Half a loaf of bread, please give me. Nobody listened, so he passed on. That night the devotee said to God, Look here, you promised and you never came. I made all arrangements for you. But God said, I did come, and you would not even give me a half a loaf of bread. So God resides in every heart. No heart is without him. We are all brothers and sisters in God. 
if we give to others, we will become happy. We want to keep everything to our own selves. The result is that everyone wants to keep everything to his own self. This is attachment. And the result, misery. All are unhappy. So those who are hungry, give them something to eat. If they are thirsty, give them something to drink. If they cannot stand on their legs, then help them stand on their legs. It would be good. If it is good for you, would it not be good for others too? Those of you who know Matthew chapter 25, after a long discourse seemingly about the end of the world and the second coming, although actually most of the outer prophecies in the chapter refer to the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple, which happened uh, within 40 years of Jesus' life and is why he said this generation will not pass away until all these things happen. Because he's not talking about the end of the world at all for the most part. Few references, but not mostly. Anyway, when at the end of the discourse, he finally, he is talking about the end of time and the final judgment and all that. And he says that, you know, I was, I was hungry and you fed me. I was sick and you took care of me. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was in jail and you visited me. And the people said, well, Lord, when did we do all that? And he said, inasmuch as you did it to one of the least of these, my brethren, you did it to me. It's the same teaching. It's a universal teaching. The Buddha taught it also. It's very well known amongst the Sufis. Same teaching is found in the Kabbalah. It's nothing new and it's nothing exclusive to any one tradition. And it's nothing especially surprising except that we don't our habit, our way of adjustment to the physical plane and to the demands of the negative power means that we, even if we intellectually believe it, we don't take it seriously on the level where it counts. It does not, it is not the place where our priorities are aimed at. And therefore, even though we may believe it. This is why Master tells that story about Rama and Sita, by the way. It makes Rama seem extremely um, unfeeling. But, of course, the point of the story is that people say things, but they don't mean them along these lines. You know, I, I can't live without God. Only we can, you see, etc. We say them, but we don't really mean them. And Master was making that point by telling that story. And uh, all the time we do this, you know. So, um, actually, there was a, a good friend of mine was once in India, and a master was, um, there were some people there. Master, this was in Master Kripal's day. It was at Sawan Ashram. And um, they had a new camera that nobody knew how to run, but they wanted, he didn't want to use it himself because he wanted to 
have someone take a picture of him with the master. There was a family. And so my friend who was there said that he could run it. And they gave it to him, and he saw, I mean, he didn't think, he didn't know that he could, but he was pretty good with cameras, and he knew a lot about them, so he was sure he could figure it out. So he said he could do it, even though he couldn't. And he took the camera, and he went over, and he, he couldn't figure it out. And he stood there working away at it, and Master and the people were standing there waiting. And finally, Master walked over to him and took the camera away from him. And he said very quietly, if you can't do it, don't say it. And I do think that that's a... When Jesus said that every idle word shall be used against you, I think this is the same idea. Question of truthfulness. Um, you know, it's another way of being untruthful. We say we can do something, but we can't do it. So it's not, it's not the truth. We may not intend to lie, but we're not really thinking very much about it either. So, Anyway, all of these things, this is the point. God resides in every heart. The correct understanding, when Sanchi tells that story, by the way, uh, he adds a few details. The person who is doing the worshiping is really an idol worshiper, okay? But his or her, in some versions it's a man, some it's a woman, uh, his or her devotion is so great that the real God hears him or her, even though the idol, the devotion is supposedly aimed at the idol, because the devotion was real. But it wasn't quite real enough, because as Sanchi says at the end of the story, he was, in, in which there were actually two old men who came, um, he was waiting for the idol to appear to him, and he did not see the living God moving around amongst him, with him, in front of him. So, it's you know, that the teaching, if you do not love your brother whom you see, how can you love God whom you do not see, is the same implicit teaching here. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself, is like unto thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, etc. Why is it like unto it? Because basically our neighbor is not different from the Lord our God, but neither is ourself. We love our neighbor as ourself because our neighbor is ourself also. So all of these things are you know, the Master's legacy to us. They're the legacy to us of all the Masters who have come. But they are what we have to hold on to, you know, and we can, if we use them as the lens, Satguru's words, words are the Satguru. It says in the Sikh scriptures, the Guru Granth Sahib, and my words abide in you, then ye will abide in me. Okay. Now, my words abide in you partly refers to the, the charged words that we are given at initiation, but it also means broader than that. It means that what the Master says is 
another way in which his life impulse is conveyed to us. It's not the most primary way, but it is a very important way, especially those of us who are not capable of receiving everything directly. And um, therefore, if we treasure his words, if we understand that the words that the Master has left with us are a treasury, you know, that is ours, that we have access to, that we can raid, that we can delve into, we can dig out from it whatever we need, then that's also a big help too. There's another story too that's in this book that the Master tells. Um, in a talk which he's talking about love. I remember a story that has just struck me. Lord Rama went into exile for 14 years. He went to the wilderness where many other yogis were living. There was one lady there of a very low caste. She was actually a bilni. A bilni, bil is the name of the caste. Ni is the female feminine ending. Uh, they're practically, they're untouchables, basically. They were not, never considered barbarians and never uh, integrated into the caste structure in India. So she's really somebody who doesn't count at all by any caste Hindu's point of view. She heard that Lord Rama was coming into exile into the wilderness, and what did she do? She thought, Rama will be coming, and he may be barefooted so that the thorns might prick his feet. So she simply cleared the way of all thorns. And then she thought in the heart of her heart, when he comes, what shall I offer him? In the wilderness there is no food to eat, but there are berries everywhere. She began to pluck berries and taste them. Those that were sweet she put in her pocket. So she kept all those tasted berries with her. Each of the yogis who was living there thought that perhaps he was the greatest of the yogis and that Lord Rama would be coming to his cottage. Mind that this I-hood, I know better, I am better than all these others, is the last weakness that leaves a man, even the so-called masters. But where did Rama go? When he went to the wilderness, he met the lady who had collected the berries. And what did he do? She offered him those berries that were tasted, and he ate them. Love knows no law. Love is above all. And Master has explained um, that uh, the, the tasting of the berries, I mean, it may seem bizarre to us, the whole story. But in India, you understand that for a low-caste person to taste berries and then offer them to a high-caste person certainly in the classical age, was an, an extremely wild uh, violation of caste law, ritual law. In the Ramlila, the Ramlila is a, a, um, a musical dramatization of the Ramayana, which uh, is where this story is from, Tulsi Das's Ramayana. 
And when I was in India in 1969, Master Kripal um, sent us to go to it. There were a number of us staying at the ashram. And he had us go to the theater to see it. He wanted us to go. He gave us a, he talked talk to us about it before we went. And then when we got back, he went over some of the incidents, especially this one he mentioned, especially. And while there, I loved it, by the way. It's magnificent thing, one of the most beautiful theatrical things I've ever been to. It's all, it was like an opera, really. It was all music from beginning to end. Anyway, at this scene, which is part of the play, um, Rama's brother Lakshman, who is also with him in the exile and is a more orthodox Hindu than Lord Rama, is absolutely horrified. When the Bilni Shivri is her name, by the way, and Sanchi refers to her in a number of bhajans as a, as a exemplar of of love, uh, Shivri offers him the berries, and Rama takes them. Lakshman turns his back in horror; he can't stand it. You know what is my brother doing? But Lord Rama doesn't care. The yogis also have their own problems with Shivri. I mean, it's not only that she's a woman and that she's low caste, but she's also not a yogi, you see. She doesn't do what they do. She's not spiritually advanced like they are, they think. Anyway, love is above all, Master says. The yogis living there have been doing penances for hundreds of years. Then he went to them and they came up to him and asked, will you kindly grace our cottage? There was a pond of water where they lived that was full of small insects. There was no other source of water, and they asked Lord Rama if he would just clean the pond of all dirt and insects by his grace, by putting his feet into the water. It, was, it is generally considered that if you are spiritually advanced enough, if you put your feet into polluted or contaminated water, it would clear it up. So this is what they are asking him. He said, no, I think you are the greatest of the yogis. Why don't you put in your feet? For they must be better able to clear up the pond. They did, and the water remained the same. Then they forced him, kindly put your feet into the water and all insects will go. He said, all right, it's up to you. He also put his feet into the pond, but the insects were still there. Lord Rama had to demonstrate the greatness of love. True love does not know any show, mind that. He said, I think it would be best if you called that Bilni and let her put her feet into the water. Then she came and put her feet into the water and the pond was cleared. These are instances to show that love is a great miracle. God is love. Through love only you become one with God. You can become one with him whom you love. As you think, so you become. So Master would tell that story, and um, he would always say when he told it, Sanchi also told the story many times, and it's in the book Streams in the Desert, as well as in this book. Um, he would say, Lord Rama wanted to demonstrate the greatness of love. That statement about how uh, the I-hood, the sense of ego, is the last thing to go, 
Master commented on that a number of times, and it's relevant to us too because it's of the utmost importance that we never think of ourselves as as the doers. If we, when we do meditation, you know, we are opening ourselves up to receive gift of grace. It is not that we are accomplishing anything. Master gives us the grace. He gives all of us the grace exactly the same. This, this the masters have made plain. Some of us are more able to get it than others. Okay, The reasons for that are many. And they are connected with exactly where we're at, karmically speaking, and a number of other things. But the Master is giving it to us exactly the same, all the same, and we will see that is true when we reach the point where we can assimilate what we have been given. It's like C.S. Lewis wrote, we cannot expect the gods to meet us face to face until we have faces. Okay? There's got to be developed within us the ability to receive that which the Master is giving. Okay? But we ha as long as we are aware that every initiate is in exactly the same place from the, po from the Master's point of view now, from the Master's point of view, every initiate is given exactly the same. And no one is ahead of anyone else from his point of view. No one is more advanced than others. Okay? If we realize that, then we can understand that when we are able to get something and we realize that, we, we can, can you know, have some perspective in the way that we, that we deal with it. Because what Master gives us is a gift of grace. None of us has earned anything. None of us can earn anything by definition. On the other hand, there is a sense in which if we look at the thing deeply enough, um, we all do deserve it because by the fact that we are in our essence the children of God and the children deserve what the Father has. So you can look at it either way, but in no case is there any differentiation. That's, that's my point. Now, if we think of ourselves as the doers, you see, then what happens is that whatever we achieve spiritually works against us because it strengthens our egos. There's a, the story that, in my experience, is the most vivid of this connection was when Judith and I were in India our first time back in 1965 at Sawanashram. Master uh, had a, there was a, the Third World Religions Conference was held that year, and we were delegates to it. And uh, at the end of the conference, Master had a tea party at the ashram for all the delegates. And they were there, and there was one of them was a yogi whose name was Surya Dev. He had a shaved head, and he was in orange robes. And uh, I had noticed him right along because he was a very scary guy. And his eyes were very funny. I, I did not like to be around him, and I kept away from him. Anyway, at, we were at this tea party on the lawn of the ashram, and everyone was being served goodies and this and that and everyone was having a good time and all of a sudden 
this guy, Surya Dev, this yogi who obviously, I mean, when I said I didn't like him or I wanted to stay away from him, I did not mean that um, he did not have power. He did have power. That was part of the trouble, I felt. I, I got a lot of power from him. Very powerful guy. Anyway, he exploded. And this was a person that had something there to explode with, so that when he exploded, it was really, it was really something. He totally lost his temper. I've never seen anyone so angry in all my life. He was foaming at the mouth. People say that you foam at the mouth when you're angry, but usually they don't. I mean, I've never seen that except that one time. But he was literally foaming at the mouth. He was so angry. Master was not very far away, and he walked over, put one hand on his back, he put the, his other hand on the guy's face, and he brought his hand down over his face like this, right down his chest onto his belly. And as he did that, the anger just drained out of that guy. It was like he had opened up a faucet, and the anger just drained out. And there was, by the time his hand got down to the, his navel, he was perfectly calm. Just, just in a few seconds it happened, and I was, I was extremely interested and impressed with the whole phenomenon, of course. I was just fascinated, actually, by the whole thing. I don't know how many people noticed what was happening. I mean, there was a, you know, a lot of people, a lot of things were going on, and um, other people may have been drifting around doing other things. I don't know how many people were aware of his anger in the first place. But later I asked Master how it could be. I, I said, I've been observing him. This man is a yogi. He has obviously worked very hard on whatever yoga he is practicing. He has achieved something. How could he lose his temper in such a way? And he told me what he said in this talk. He said, the eyehood is the last thing that goes. And if you, your eyehood is still there, what everything that you do can go to strengthen it. In other words, you can develop power, but if, if your ego is what's doing it, then that power goes to strengthen the ego instead of to strengthen the eternal self. So that um, he, has, he, he has achieved something, but because his eyehood is what is achieving it, it's not really helping him much. Anyway, those are, are th things that I, you know, it's like when we experience whatever we experience in meditation, it is not the ego that is experiencing it. Yet when we think about it afterwards, we think about it in terms of the I, as usual. Okay? This is one of the reasons why it's not very helpful to talk about our experiences to others, because when we do talk about them, we strengthen that. But it, you know, even in the way, even if we don't talk about them, if we think about them in that way, it can still um, work against us in the long run. I have done this. I have experienced that. We, we, we have to, it's important to remember, God has given me this. Master gave me that. You know, Master has done this. And to realize, to be aware, 
that we can't do that. If we do do it, then it's the gift of God. And that's, you know, that's the way that masters themselves look at it. You, you know, that silencing, and this, this comes up with, with the business of wanting the next master to show himself, you know, by our timetable too. Silencing was, was ordered by Baba Jamal Singh to be his successor. Baba Jamal Singh left the body in December 1903, and he made no secret about it. Unlike with Kripal and Sanchi, he made a public statement to the effect that Sawan Singh was going to inherit the Gadi. And uh, when Bibi Ruko went into the hall one time, the new satsang hall that had just been built at the Dera in Bayas, she saw Baba Sawan Singh sitting on the dais instead of Baba Jamal Singh. She was not happy about that because she didn't want Babaji to leave, of course. Anyway, uh, despite all that, Sawan Singh would not do the work of the master for over a year. He just wouldn't do it. He was not interested in doing it. And one day he went to Agra to visit Chachaji, who was the younger brother of Swamiji and someone who had been very supportive and helpful to Baba Jamal Singh. He was considered also to be a living master, Chachaji. He was he had followers too, and he was like Baba Jamal Singh, he was considered one of the successors of Swamiji. So Baba Sawan Singh went with several other people to visit Chachaji, and when they sat down, Chachaji asked him, Who has Babaji appointed to carry on the work and to give Nam? at the Dera. And Sawan Singh wouldn't say anything. And the other people there said, he's appointed him, pointing to Sawan Singh, but he won't do it. And Chachaji said, why won't you do it? And Sawan Singh said, because I don't have enough power. And Chachaji looked at him and said, all right, you do it the way your guru told you, and I will be responsible. Right, you can use my power. And Sawan Singh said, all right, I will do the work for you as though I were a barber carrying messages from town to town. That is, the barber carries messages, but they're not his messages. He just tells other people what people in another town said. In a, in a village uh, situation in those days, there was no mail system, of course. So the barber would serve the, who traveled from village to village and shaved everybody, etc., would um, would serve that purpose. That's when Sawan Singh agreed to do it. From his perspective, this is the way it looked. He did not have the power, and he did. this was not something he felt he wanted to get into. I don't pretend to know how it looked from his point of view, but I would urge you to... to understand that this, from the master's point of view, it does look like this, that he never thinks of himself as spiritually advanced, that he thinks of his master as the doer, only, the only doer, and that it is very difficult for him, and I'm speaking now of the true master, it is very difficult for the true master to do the work, to be willing to take on this work. And... Um, 
you know, we may, someone who is too much of a hurry to be recognized is not necessarily anyone that we want to trust. So, I mean, people, you know, and that, that story of silencing is very well attested. It's, he told it in his old age, um, actually, just a couple of years before he left, in 1946, um, and it was recorded by his secretary. And uh, it's, uh, it, I've heard it other places, too. It's, it's around. It's out there in the literature. And uh, people, when people hear the story, they're often astonished. You're absolutely astonished. Silencing said that? He didn't have enough power? Obviously, he proceeded to do the work for 45 years of a master with, with great power. And... Uh, impressed some people as maybe the most powerful master who ever lived. But it didn't seem that way to him. That's the point. And it shouldn't seem that way to us. You know, whatever power we may think we have, we should realize that we don't have a thing, you know, that it's the master who is giving us whatever it is that we have got and that we share this you know, with all our brothers and sisters. Well, I want to, I'll close. Um, I'll try to go further with some of these points tomorrow morning. But I will uh, close with with part of Sanchi's introduction. Um, this is I included both poetry and prose in the introduction. So I'll read the one of his favorite bhajans, which was sung um, after he left also, and then continue with his last message, the last birthday message part of it, not the whole thing, which are all included in this book also. Kripal gave only this message and even the wind also teaches us this. If you keep walking while doing the Simran, the destination comes to you by itself. The fort of deceit will be destroyed in this world because walls of sand do not last. There are so many sins with you. You are a great sinner. Hail the power of almighty Kripal who carries all the burden. No one is an enemy. No one belongs to anyone else. Everyone is your very own. For as the Gurbani teaches, all this world was created from one light. O Guru Kripal, the negative power trembles, and death also is nervous in front of whomever has caught hold of your finger. Ajayb says, apologize to Kripal if your soul wants happiness. Kripal gave only this message, and even the wind also teaches us this. If you keep walking while doing the Simran, the destination comes to you by itself. Dear ones, the great Sadgurus left their home of permanent peace and happiness 
and came into this burning world for the forgetful sinners like us. Working so hard, day and night, they brought the people of different kinds into the gardens of their satsangs. They protected us and took care of us like tender plants. We are the forgetful jivas. They gave us the holiest, purest, and simple teachings of the meditation of Surat Shabbat. They put us on the path of spirituality. Every day, giving the water of satsang and sprinkling the drops of their gracious sight, they made our burning and dry hearts green. They brought us close to each other by sewing us in the silken thread of love and made us brothers and sisters. They made us the members of their spiritual family and explained to us that we are the children of the same father. So our relationship is very firm here and also in the beyond. In very forceful words, the great Satguru explained to us that this world is a traveler's inn. No one has ever lived here forever, nor is anyone going to live here forever. Remember that you have to leave this place. So make your life and your earnings clean. Make the Satguru and the fear of him dwell in your heart. Make room for his love in your heart. Spare at least 10% of your time and use it for the meditation of Shabad Nam. Make meditation an important part of your life so that, with the grace of the Master and under his guidance, you may reach your true abode and have his darshan in abundance. Dear ones, we have spent all our life beautifying our body. Now the time has come to pay attention to our soul. The soul has been crying, but we never pay any attention to her. We never pay any attention to cleaning her. Today, on this holy occasion, that is Master Kapal's birthday, of course, and remembering the beautiful form of the Master, let us all take this vow, make this promise, that from now on we will spend as much time in meditation as possible, Falling at the feet of the Master with all humility and with a true heart, let us all pray that he may give us such understanding and strength that from this day we may understand the long-forgotten work of doing Simran as the most important and personal work and start doing Bhajan and Simran. Dear ones, today is a very auspicious opportunity to pray to the Master and ask him for his blessings and grace. We should clean the soul with the broom of Simran and with meditation beautify our souls. Apologize for our faults. Who knows whether we will get such an opportunity again or not. I can assure you that if our efforts are determined and our faith in the Master is strong, definitely, the destination will kiss our feet and will welcome us. So let us appreciate the time and not let it slip out of our hands. Let us apply ourselves in cleaning our soul 
so that we may make our birth successful and earn the pleasure of Hazur Kripal. Ajayab Singh. All right. Thank you very much for your patient hearing.